All right, I'm here today with Dr. James Lyons-Weiler. His friends call him Jack, so I will call you Jack today. Um, welcome to the show. I wanted to, to bring you on to talk about some of the work that you do, and in particular, um, one of the ways that you are helping to hopefully hold accountable some of the people who've been responsible for what's been going on this past year. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks um, for having me. Yeah, I, I, so I first wanted to ask you about your project, Unbreaking Science. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about what that is. Right, so a few years ago, uh, there were some areas in science that discovered that the results were not reproducible. Uh, the results in psych psychological studies, for instance, were not reproducible in nutrition. And then when attention got turned to the cause of this, it included a large number of contributing factors, including the fact that academia prefers, um, you know, science that leads to headlines, it, you know, the exciting positive results, not the boring negative results. If you test whether, you know, um, <clears throat> something is effective or not, if you find that it's not effective, it's less likely to be published, especially if you have a financial interest. So there's perverse financial in interests. Uh, other Reasons include people uh, in science trying to, you know, parse out the the smallest publishable unit, right? Because they want to drag out the, uh, the research funding, so and they don't want to give away, you know, the whole game at one time, uh, and so they end up making incremental steps forward in knowledge using public funds from the NIH or the NSF, for instance, uh, and and other things like. Poor study design, over-reliance on observational studies instead of doing proper experiments. Um, there's a lot of that. So I put together three boot camp episodes of Unbreaking Science, where I go into the reproducibility crisis in science writ large, including p-hacking and, and other things. So there's a whole backdrop of you know, people analyzing the results one time, looking at the results, not liking it, throwing it back in the analyzer cooking it again, seeing if it's done, bringing it back out, you know, doing analysis over and over until they get the result that they want and, and all of it. So rather than just give up on science, society should then, you know, hope that science is self-correcting. And that's what we're told by the people, you know, who have addressed the concerns of former editors-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, who came out and said, basically, the studies that are being published are nothing more than advertisements for pharmaceutical companies. We can't stand by them, and, and we're no longer going to participate. Well, well, but we do need science. How else are we going to understand the world and the universe around us, right? I have two sons who are going into science. They're both undergrads right now. And I want science to be robust and rigorous and healthy, and to contribute to things like public health, to contribute to things like good, 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 useful medicine, um, to reduce human pain and suffering. And so, Unbreaking Science is a podcast. Uh, it's a video. It evolved into a video podcast where we can bring in scientists, we can bring in the public, we can bring in, um, you know, medical professionals, not just to talk about what's wrong with science, but also to talk about um, how science is misinterpreted or misused in creating public policy and public health policy, or creating medical best, best, best practices of, of standards of care for medicine. Um, so everything's on the table. 
you know, people come in, they disagree with me, they're entitled to their opinion. I leave them a lot of space to think their thoughts out. You know, we really do have to have a space somewhere where we have rational discourse, uh, where we, you know, give considered analysis to some of these more complex issues. Um, it's not agenda driven. You know, somebody was talking with me about how they thought, well, you know, if we do a series of podcasts with you, people are going to see it this way because of your agenda. And I said, now hang on just a minute. My agenda is objectivity and science. And if somebody is not going to listen to Unbreaking Science or listen to what I'm doing because I want objectivity and science, I don't want them in my audience. <laughs> if they want something else, they have an agenda of their own that doesn't fit objectivity and science. So basically, in a nutshell, that's what it is. Awesome. Um, I've had some other guests on my show talking about how, um, you know, how broken the scientific review, review process is, and in particular peer review. Um, one of the things that's happened this past year that I think is kind of exciting is how, you know, with, with all these preprint sites and people really engaging, a lot more people engaging in looking at the, re at the research and critiquing it, it seems like it's it's in a, in a sense there's a there's some science that's sort of breaking away from the traditional peer review boundaries and and for good reason. Um, what do you think about? It? Do you see anything positive happening there? I see both positive and negative. So the positive, mm -hmm. obviously, is if you have a crisis and you want to get the, your news out, you can publish a preprint. You know, you, you get credit for the work being published first. If you're into that kind of thing, if that's important to you, you know, set it sets precedence over who found what correlation or causation first and this kind of thing. But, um, you know, the, the negatives are also include that you have, for instance, uh, you know, non-peer-reviewed studies that show, for instance, that the coronavirus mRNA appears to be able to enter the human genome in cell lines. Now that's not peer reviewed. Now it, that's a very, very important consideration. If it were peer reviewed, and then of course, if it, were, if it were replicated, then the fact checkers wouldn't be going around saying that there's no peer reviewed science that shows that this is impossible. And therefore, you know, they rely on the absence of evidence. So it has good and bad. And the other bad thing about this is that if you're into thinking about things in terms of the establishment controlling the narrative, it's very easy for people who are much have much more life experience in publishing and much more life experience in competitive aspects of academic publishing to abuse open science by saying, well, you published your paper on a preprint server somewhere, so it's already published. We're not going to publish in our journal or to take your idea and beat you to a peer reviewed publication and, try, you know, or take take your findings and, and do their own study and without giving your credit because it doesn't really count it's not peer reviewed so it's a bit messy and unfortunately for for the good bad the ugly the indifferent whatever i think in the long run this process is going to be temporary i don't think it's going to take hold i know there's a lot of people that are into the open science movement mm -hmm. where everything should be you know totally transparent show everything but in reality for the people that ha are young in their career, there's real risk that some silverback, you know, shark is going to take advantage of, uh, you know, f uh, a naive assistant professor giving away the shop with all the keys and, 
you know, the, the, this is a real problem in academia where the establishment reinforces its, itself and it reinforces its base for survival, as opposed to saying, you know, I'm a 67 year old professor, I've had my career, let's give the next generation a chance. Academia is famous for eating its young in science. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's good. I, 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 I will barely participate in it. See, my model is if you have something you need to get out, write a technical report, just put out a technical report. You know, it's and how pre-print. is that different from a preprint? Which... Well, a technical report is different from a preprint because you never intend for the technical report to be peer-reviewed. Oh. Right? It, 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 like if Harvard University, for instance, or, or Massachusetts General Hospital put out technical reports on some of their findings, it would contribute to the body of scientific knowledge where people could interpret a technical report appropriately. In a technical report, this was said and this was found as okay but then in this study this was also found it it, these kinds of initial preliminary results a technical report is like giving a presentation at a scientific conference it's not peer-reviewed you're you're presenting it to the world so it's not going to carry the weight of a of a peer-reviewed or maybe even these days of a preprint it's something on its own I think in the long run, we're going to find that preprint servers are not included in meta-analysis. They're not included in systematic reviews. So in terms of the weight of scientific evidence, preprint servers are going to be largely ignored when the full story is told. So, right. So now we have this conundrum where we have these kinds of like this gray zone of publication, whereas a technical report, you can cite a technical report in, say, the introduction as motivation for doing something, right? We do it all mm-hmm. the time. Anybody that cites morbidity and mortality weekly report, anybody that cites a guidance from the FDA, anybody that cites a guidance from the CDC, those aren't peer reviewed. Those are, right? right. They carry a huge right. amount of authority because yeah. they come with the, the government stamp of approval, but that doesn't mean that they're right by yeah. any means. Yeah. So so what I would hope is that people would start publishing technical reviews and, and, and seeing if your papers never, if what happens to a paper that's on a preprint server, but it never makes it into a scientific journal, it doesn't right. pass peer review. Or right. do you then retract it after a certain period of time? There's no policies there. Or rewrite and, it as something else. And yeah. Well, that's, yeah. And, and that's fair game too. So let's say you put out a preprint and you, you, you did one study and you're going to use these results in this study. And then these other study, these results didn't pan out, but you did another experiment. You put them together. It's already on the preprint. Will the journals publish it or not? You already published it on a preprint server, mm-hmm. it, you know. So it, it, there's a there's a bit of a complication, for, and I'm sorry for anybody that's not really you know into the subtle nuances of, of academic publishing. Yeah. But it's the reason why I say it won't make it it won't carry the weight eventually is because in science we look at observational, you know, opinion is the weakest evidence. Observational studies are the second weakest, and then you know, uh, um, then the, then we get to things like uh, uh, clinical trials and experiments. But then we have the systematic reviews, and then we have meta-analysis. And nothing on a preprint server will be considered in a meta-analysis. So it's almost as if it never happened. Right. What's interesting to me, though, is that the whole this whole episode really seems to be exposing the the, the flaws in the peer review system. I mean, some examples are like Surgisphere, the fact that that you know that was picked up and you know it, it was complete fraud, and then the Corman Drosten stuff. I mean. The, the original, the Corman Drosten paper, it was peer reviewed, but in a period of like 27 hours, I think it was. So for anyone who's watching this, it seems like, wow, this whole process is riddled with fraud. Do you, am I overstating that? 
Well, the whole process is not, and I want to be, I want to be very, very emphatic about this. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, there is a massive public health agenda behind the study to show that hydroxychloroquine, the fraudulent study that was retracted, mm-hmm. hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. And Merrill Nass MD showed that the, the doses that used were fatal. They were in late stage coronavirus. And now that the abundance of science shows that hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and other, you know, um, interventions or therapies or treatments, they, they, they seem to be very efficacious, highly efficacious if they're done, if they're used early. So there's definitely an agenda and it's, it's a demerit, a massive black eye on the journals that publish those hydroxychloroquine studies. So there's got to be blowback in terms of public's, in terms of the public opinion. Oh, another study from the New England Journal of Medicine. How do we know that that's not also fraudulent? The mm-hmm. fact that they, they, you know, they, 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 they retracted it points to the fact that science can be self-correcting, but how did it get there in the first place? Well, it got there in the first place because it got in under the wire because of this emergency. So I think the preprint server does kind of give this no man's land where we can share our ideas. The same thing as uh, people just getting on uh, podcasts and saying, here, I want to show some new results from a study. They should say it's not peer reviewed. So the, the, they, do, they do provide a, a service uh, in, in terms of an emergency to get information out. It would, it, you know, but, but, but let's look at it this way how much science that's in these journal articles going on back to the original problem that science was broken right is valid anyway so right so the the, the peer review process is by no means a, a gold seal of of reality and legitimacy you have to <laughs> yeah that's to, my cat she likes I, to join us <laughs> that's cool so yeah you, you have to take you have to take the good and the bad with uh, scientific publication there's the you know if if a if a person writes a paper and self uh, corrects it and and I've I've issued corrigenda I've issued errata to say listen we made a mistake here's the mistake that is a correction to it's an editorial correction to your publication if the if the scientist retracts her own paper that has a very different weight than if you know it's it's found to be fraudulent and then retracted so there's a lot of dimensions to thinking about scientific publication and I'm glad you brought it up because it's a very important thing the public uh, can learn how to read and interpret scientific studies at IPAC edu that's the university I put together I teach a course once a year where we go through each part of a scientific study and we go over the landscape. It's a roadmap to how scientific studies are put together and how they're published. So they can learn to critique studies on your own. You might not understand all of the technical language, but you know, there's some really smart people out there that haven't that that, that want to be able to look at scientific studies and 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 weigh in on them. So that, uh, it's a very important thing. I believe uh, what I wanted to be emphatic about was. By and large, I would say 90%, you, you know, of, of the actual number of scientists that are out there are legitimate scientists that are not fraudulent. Mm-hmm. There's a minority of people who have gamed the system and they use academic science, they use corporate science, they abuse it for massive profit. They, you know, you've got to think about struggling scientists a bit like starving artists there's right. a huge yeah. ton of scientists that are ethical <clears throat> universities and you have and to go where the money it, is they make it from year to year they can only do research on what's funded they haven't yeah. really cracked the code that the public is really interested in seeing good science done 
And that's one thing that I do at IPAC, the, 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 the not-for-profit institute, is I listen to what the public says, where the knowledge gaps are. If I agree objectively that, yes, that's a study that should be done that is likely to re, re, you know lead to reduction of human pain and suffering, I'll help design the study, I'll do the analysis, I'll do whatever I could do. But the public has to fund it. And that raises the issue, am I subject to um, you know bias? because of public funding. This is a topic that I'm, I'm extremely uh, aware of and I'm sensitive to. And the way I deal with it is I don't let my funders tell me whether I can publish or not. That's the gold standard. There's never been anybody at IPAC that's uh, donated to IPAC that called me up and said, you know what, if you publish another study like this, I'm not going to fund you. And if they did, I would sit, I'd be quite frank with them and I'd say, we don't need your money. You know, I don't want your money because we, we have to separate the, the influence of money from the results from the science. And I think I've cracked that code. So when you say public funding, just to be clear, you're talking about your donors. You're talking about people who donate to. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent of the, of the research that's done at IPEC is funded by small donations from people who have families who want to see objective science survive this in uh, nice. $5, $10, whatever. And I will uh, link never, to that in the show notes. Yeah. I, I will, I will never, um, take money from any government. I would never, never take money from any foundation. I'll, I don't need anybody else's, uh, any, or I should say, I don't need anyone's agenda interfering yeah. with the objective science that I want to do. Now, that doesn't mean I'm bias-free. Every individual walking on the planet has a bias of some kind, sure. limited background knowledge, perception bias, right? Everything else. But there are tools in science that we can use. And one of them that I think that's not used enough is actually you know, very important um, um, to separate out the funding source from the results. And if we, if we, could, we could mandate that, that would be some, some way, that would be really, really important. Except that the people in charge of mandating have their own agenda too. Exactly. And that's, that's why, you know, hopefully we will emerge from this uh, draconian period in a democracy where the public can speak up and they can either vote for people that want to separate the funding from the results in, in elections and make it an election thing, or they'll just say, you know what, I'm going to fund through donations to places yeah. like iPad. Well, I feel like what you're doing and, and also the preprints and I mean, honestly, even some of the debate that's going on on Twitter with people weighing in with, you know, with the, the, the stuff that's well backed up. I feel like that's a good sign. It means that there's, there's more of a demand now for honesty and science and honesty in, in what gets published. But that's I didn't want to focus on that today. I actually wanted to ask you about what you're doing with um, the whole the 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 testing fiasco, the PCR. We've I've had other guests talking about this too. Um, what's what's the problem with there? What's the problem with all the testing with what we see as cases or not cases, how, how would you sum that up? Well, that's a big question. So uh, thanks for bringing that up. So if a, if a person's going to be diagnosed, if there's case determination to be made, whether a person's going to be diagnosed with a respiratory illness or if a person has died in the context where respiratory illness is suspected, they may be tested. If they're tested, they, they, they may, they're most likely to end up with a PCR test, right? And so... That the PCR test you brought up, the Drosten study. I thought that the initially I thought the Drosten study was as good as anyone could do at the time. All right, the, the sequence had just been published. They did do empirical checks on specificity, which is light years beyond what our FDA required. 
of commercial kits, right? The FDA didn't right. require yeah. any empirical data on 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 false positives. Yeah. And so if, if you're tested, you're going to get a positive or negative result. And under the CDC's paradigm of case determination or death determination for reporting, if you test negative, you can still end up being considered plausible or what's the word? Um, like likely COVID-19. I've forgotten the word. It just escaped my mind, but it's uh, so you, you probable. So you have a, a, a you know, probable uh, category. And when you do that, you've got the positive PCR, the presence of the virus positive result is being used as a clinical diagnostic. That's it. You have, you have COVID. The presence of a molecule, you have the disease, where in reality, the disease is a set of symptoms. Yeah. And why is that so? Because without the symptoms, you're not likely to transmit. It's very connected, right? So you, you could have a false positive due to contamination. You could have a false positive due to the fact that the virus just got into your nasopharyngeal tract. You could end up with false positives because of the nature of the kit, mm -hmm. right? And how you use the kit. And if you've heard about the CT scandal, we're labeling yeah. all of this, by the way, hashtag testgate. So this is like the first <laughs> interview on testgate where, where the CT values were pushed all the way up to 40 where anybody that had any nucleic acid material that would amplify eventually could be given a positive PCR test. Now, why did they do that? They did that because way back in February, they shipped out a flood test. Um, you know, they, they made and shipped out a flood test and then they felt that they had to catch up. And they, how are you gonna catch up with, we can't miss a single test. The problem is whoever made the, uh, we can't miss a single case. The, whoever, the problem is whoever made up that rule, we can't miss a single case, didn't really understand the trade-off in molecular diagnostics between sensitivity and specificity. Sensitivity yeah. is the ability to test to detect the virus if it's present or to lead to a diagnosis in the greater scheme of things, uh, a correct diagnosis if in fact the person has COVID. <clears throat> and specificity is the ability to say it's not there when it's truly not there. Right, so you have the false negatives if you get the specific the sensitivity wrong, and you get the false positives if you get the specificity wrong. So sensitivity is the ability to correctly detect, and specificity is the ability to not detect when it's not there. Yeah. And and this is all worked out. I, I I've studied this. I mastered this. I wrote papers on how to do this with uh, RLC curves and biomarker development and everything. What they decided when they decided to diagnose basically everybody that they could get a push through. Uh, amplification on PCR. What they were doing is they were trying somehow uh, ad hoc for the first time ever to get back to the place where they could do contact tracing. So they're just going to give everybody a positive test result, basically, if you have any nucleic acid uh, that amplified, and then hope that that would lead to contact tracing and then bring down. And, and they, they, they were scared. They they, they Absolutely, under Trump's. And when you when uh, you say they, is this the who that that got this started? Was it the CDC? It, it's it's the CDC and the World Health Organization. So the World Health Organization and, and, and on on February twentieth of twenty twenty one put out an announcement that said, "Yeah, we've been running these PCR tests too high." That's the same day that Joe Biden was right, sworn in, right, right. So in terms of collusion. There's a there there. There's no doubt that there are many people in the world, liberals, Democrats, American, not American, voting citizens, not whatever, who want to Trump out of office. There's no question in my mind that the CT values were raised specifically to, first of all, 
to try to save the face on CDC. They shipped out a flood test. What are we going to do? Oh, we'll just raise the CT. Somebody made that decision. I'd like to know who. Second, um, there's no doubt in my mind that the process became politicized because when Trump tried to downplay um, the the risk due to COVID for political, you know, he didn't want to scare people. And he also didn't want to have to answer, I think, to the conservative um, base that really didn't want to hear that coronavirus was a serious problem. Then their reaction was to polarize completely opposite. And, you know, when I, when I say they, I mean uh, the Democratic Party, the liberal agenda was anything that Trump was for, we're against, period. Mm-hmm. We're going to politicize this and we have control of the media because pharma's behind us. So we're going to win hands down. We can take any position we want. That doesn't sound very scientific to me. <laughs> so when I was uh, was asked to show up in Harrisburg, right in the middle of all of this, I really railed on both sides. How dare you politicize public health? How dare you hold on to a scientific position when you know that it's not true? And putting people at risk either of being diagnosed with COVID when they shouldn't be and locked down, leading to deaths of despair, or not being diagnosed with, with, with COVID when they should be and not getting proper medical care, whatever that proper medical care could turn out to be. Yeah. And also to politicize hydroxychloroquine. Right. Absolutely. Right. How many lives did that cost? In talking with the people that are kind of waking up months and months later, all, probably 75 to 80 percent of the deaths could have been prevented from COVID-19 if we allowed early hydroxychloroquine ivermectin treatment, Dr. Brownstein's protocol, vitamin D3 with vitamin A, you yeah. know, all, all of it. And so the, the people that did that for political gain, the, our parties, both both political parties have to purge those people out. They, they don't deserve to hold any power in the political parties whatsoever. That's one road towards kind of rectifying the problem. You know, you told us that we were supposed to do this and hundreds of thousands of people die. You're out. Just do it quietly. But, have I them mean, resign, but, have them move on. Just get but them have them resign, have them move on. I mean, I look at that and I see a crime. I see. I do too. But, so so how do we really, I mean, it's the same thing. I'm, I live in California and it's the same thing with Newsom. You know, there's this big campaign to get rid of him. Well, great, but he's destroyed a lot of people's lives. He's actually, mm-hmm. his policies and, and the policies you're talking about, have resulted in unnecessary deaths of totally. people. Totally. So how do you hold those people accountable? Other than just, oh, you're out of office, it, there's got to be something more. There is. In the United States, citizens can can convene grand juries. So that's what okay. Dr. Uh, Henry Ely is doing uh, with the CDC scandal. And that's why the government put you know um, the, the mass media to attacking IPAC, uh, uh, the institute that I run, because our journal, Science, Public Health Policy and the Law, dared to publish a peer-reviewed analysis of the flawed diagnostic paradigm. What they don't realize is that they cannot possibly hide the flaw in that diagnostic paradigm. It's, it's, it's elementary. It's very simple to show what happens in that paradigm through simulation. And that's what we're doing. And we're going to publish mm. this in, in, in a major journal that shows that when you test some people and you allow the negatives to be reverted back to cases based on opinion or symptomology only, you end up feeding six different pathways towards false positives. And, and, and if, if you're following IPAC at all at ipaknowledge.org, you'll, you know, and following me on social media, I've already posted the decision tree that reflects the CDC's process. So, you know, Italy is is convening some criminal criminal investigations, uh, you know, over vaccine deaths. 
So mm -hmm. the, the actual deaths from lack of adequate and appropriate um, care, medical care, those we need one or two really high profile examples of people that are prosecuted. But what I'm saying is the politicians themselves will never be tried for malpractice in medicine. They, they're just voices or talking heads. They're, you know, policymakers who have to go along. It was a 600 page bill. What do you want? The point is they need to get out of politics. If you're an ethical person at all, they want to be able to look their grandchildren in the eye and say, I tried to, I made a mistake and I tried to do the best that I could do. Just realize you're you're inept. Even if you did it for political gain and you think you're doing the right thing for your party, get the hell out of politics. You don't belong there. You killed people. You killed people by not allowing them to get hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, vitamin D, all the other treatments that we know. I just learned that um, Pepsid, of all things, you know, um, H1, H2 uh, agonists, you know, have like a 15% reduction in mortality in, in hospitalized for COVID, patients for COVID-19. Mm -hmm. huh. It's well, incredible. We, it's incredible. They're going to have to ban that now. Well, they, 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 this was published in August. I didn't know about it until now. Huh. All this time from August, if you shut down the eosinophilia, these are eosinophil blockers. So they're, they're antagonists for the signals for eosinophilia. But why the hell wasn't that out there? And, who, and, you know, no, because we have this one size fits all. We have to have vaccines are the only thing. And the one, the one person I would like to see held accountable, of course, is Anthony, Anthony Fauci specifically mm -hmm. for misinterpreting the Henry Ford study. He specifically went on the microphone and said, everybody knows, first of all, peer review, lots of things get peer reviewed. It doesn't mean that it's right. And we just said that. Oh, fine. That's agreed. However, that also doesn't mean that the Henry Ford study wasn't correct, right? Logically, just because something- and which, one, which was the Henry Ford study? What was that? Henry Ford uh, study looked at hydroxychloroquine in combination with steroids, corticosteroids, and they found a, re a, a significant reduction in mortality, okay? In, in people that were, that were uh, er early use, and but they were going to be hospitalized. And so uh, what Fauci said was, well, we also know that because the patients got corticosteroids, then we don't know whether the effect was due to corticosteroids or due to hydroxychloroquine, so who knows? And he called for large, long-term, long randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trials on hydroxychloroquine, okay? So right. when he did that, that's when the sea change occurred on hydroxychloroquine. That key moment, that key speech right there is the lowest point of that man's career, in my opinion. Hmm. the lowest point because hundreds of thousands of people could have begun it's about it was abundantly available after he said that we started mm -hmm. shipping hydroxychloroquine overseas right so mm -hmm. american citizens did not have to die because because but they did die because he misled the misled the scientific and medical community and he misled the politicians he misled the public on the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine the correct interpretation of that henry ford study is very straightforward the use of hydroxychloroquine with corticosteroids shows a massive reduction in mortality. That's the appropriate. Rather than, oh, we don't know if it's corticosteroids. The question isn't, mm -hmm. do we give them corticosteroids or hydroxychloroquine? That was never the question. Right. And so he astroturfed the entire study. And he needs to be held accountable for, for that. And from that, then we get back to, okay, Dr. Fauci is no longer on television telling us what to do, telling, not giving an excuse for, yeah, PCR was, so there was a mistake made, there are no bad people, uh, you know, it wasn't intentional. You know, no more excuses. 
from, from Fauci, no more excuses from NIAID. And then we turn to CDC and we say, all right, we're going to revisit step by step. We need a death audit on every single case. Every single case that you said was a death due to COVID-19 deserves a full reconsideration. And we already know what the estimates are. We know that at least 25% from Dr. Uh, Scott Jensen, he's uh, you know former senator of Minnesota, I guess he's now running for governor of Minnesota. Uh, he sat down with me and showed me the data, about 25% of the deaths that he was being forced to say uh, on the on the report were due to coronavirus, were not mm -hmm. due to coronavirus. So if we adjust everything down by 25%, great, fine. So those people died from something else so we can relax. But if we, then we adjust the mortality rate of coronavirus by 80%, up to 88% in ivermectin studies, then coronavirus literally becomes less deadly than influenza, okay? And yeah. but, but we have to remember this is during a lot, this is during isolation, this is during testing, this is during, so it's a different situation than influenza, they're not directly comparable. So now what do we do? Well, we make sure that the CDC follows the rules from now on. CDC absolutely has to have oversight on how they count deaths and cases. And I've actually published a paper called Plan B, where I envision a future where CDC is not involved in public health. CDC, I would love that future. <laughs> CDC should simply be, you know, a depot of information with no authority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It should be right, and, and Plan B. It's it's uh, published this year, uh, no, last at the end of last year. Uh, basically, sets up eighty different research institutions. They work independently. They don't talk to each other. And the, the number one goal, the number one job of these research institutions, is to determine what's causing the death and suffering, pain and suffering, and death in American citizens, regardless of what it is. Everything's on the table. Mm -hmm. If it's allopathy, fine. And in my estimation, they're going to find allopathy because with the misdiagnosis of bacterial pneumonia as COVID, misdiagnosis of RSV as COVID, misdiagnosis of influenza as COVID, uh, medical error, and the mistreatment with the with the, with the ventilators and the, and the inadequate mm -hmm. treatment from hydroxychloroquine, allopathy mistakes in medicine, allopathic medicine are now the number one cause of death in the United States. There's no doubt about it. Number one, you say? Yeah. It used to be number three. Right. So the, right. Now those mistakes, those medical errors are now number one. Okay. So I just have a, just a clarifying question about that number, because I remember when that first, uh, when iatrogenic death numbers first, or when I first became aware of them, this is going back like maybe 20 years. And it wasn't, referred to as medical mistakes, it was iatrogenic death, which is death from, it could be a mistake or it could be something used properly that just had a bad reaction in a, in, in a particular person. Is that, is that the number you're talking about? So no, you're I'm, not even just, talking, I'm not even talking about the bad reactions. So, when, so, when so it's even the real, the number of iatrogenic death is even bigger than, than what you're talking about. Yeah. So that makes allopathy, you know, this, this huge killer of Americans, right? If you think about it, the medical errors, were the number three cause of death. Mm -hmm. Now, Already, the de defenders, defenders of the allopathic model will say, well, yes, but look how many lives it saves. How do you respond to that? Um, let's take a look at that, right? There's a lot of stolen valor from allopathy. For instance, one of the things that I want to see with the coronavirus vaccine is titers to non-spike proteins in people who have been vaccinated. How many people who have been vaccinated have immunity to coronavirus due to subclinical infection or prior infection? And 
we're going to count the vaccine as giving them immunity when they already were immune? No, let's not do that. Let's actually do objective science and get a full accounting of the immunological landscape of American citizens to coronavirus, uh, spe specifically SARS-CoV-2, because there is no NP pre pro there's no NP protein in the vaccine. There's only the spike protein, right? There's no E protein, right, only right. the spike protein. So there's so many other proteins to which Americans are probably have immunity to. All the credit's going to go to the vaccine? I don't think so. So, so that's you, actually, it sounds like that's something, if, if you could access that data, that's something you could look at even post-vaccine. You could... 100%. And that is, that's what IPAC is for. IPAC mm. is, is, first of all, we've set up a nucleic assay um, um, a technology evaluation consortium, NATEC. We're working with Dr. Singhang Lee, we're working with Dolores Cahill, we're working with Dr. Henley Ely and Kevin Jenkins and others, and specifically interested in getting clinical samples tested to see how many of the samples that are given the diagnosis of COVID-19 are actually influenza A, influenza B, or maybe RSV, maybe bacterial pneumonia. How are we going to do that? We're going to do it by sequencing the DNA and the RNA that's in the sample. Dr. Lee showed 30% false positive in the sequences he's seen so far. Okay. And we know that he's picking up new, new variations from New York City. So it's not a false positive. It's not laboratory contamination. Okay. You can go to ipaknowledge.org and check that out. Well, on top of it, right, there's nothing in the world stopping IPAC from lining up people who've been vaccinated and having their... Uh, blood drawn and getting mm -hmm. titers tested for uh, proteins other than the spike protein to coronavirus. I think this is a very important study. We won't do the study in ourselves. We'll contract it out, but there's nothing stopping us. We just need to write a proposal to an IRB and we need public funding to do it. So, you know, there's nothing stopping us from giving a, the appropriate portion of the credit to infection, natural infection. Uh, this is a study, obviously, allopathy will never, ever, ever do. They'll mm -hmm. never be interested in doing it. Mm -hmm. so. um, just to go back a second, the the early, so the earlier study or the earlier samples that you were talking about, um, not the lining up people who've been vaccinated and checking them, where where do you propose or where are you getting those samples from? Where do you... We answer to the IRB on that, and I'd rather not say because we don't want to shut that pipeline okay. down. Okay. All right. Okay. Is there anything else you can say? Because this is this is actually very exciting. Um, what you're doing. Is there anything else you can say about that project? Uh, yes. Uh, part of that project is the simulation study that we're doing, um, and and uh, I can tell you the preliminary results uh, show that the more testing you do under CDC's paradigm the more false positives you get um, in terms of percentages of, of cases. Do you have a number to? No, because it, it's across the entire, it's across the entire range of possibilities. See, mm -hmm. well, it's a very technical study that we're doing. We're looking at parameter relation, we're mapping parameter relationships. So it, you, you vary the, the testing from zero to 100, and then you look at what happens to the false positive rate from mm -hmm. zero to 100. Mm -hmm. And that's either going to be a, a, a flat line, it's going to be a positive line, or it's going to be a negative line. Well, it turns out it's a positive line. We see mm -hmm. now, these results have not survived peer review, <laughs> right? <laughs> to be fair, but that's what we're right. seeing 
but that's what and, you're seeing so far. We're, right, we're, we're going to write it up. It's just math. It, you know, it's verifiable. We have software people writing software code to verify that our spreadsheets are right, all of it. Uh, you know, and, and so when this gets published, what this means is, is, like I said from the beginning, it was an assumption that more testing is always better. But when prevalence is low, it's already known that the more testing you do when prevalence is low and you have any false positives, that your false positive rate is going to increase. We're characterizing all the relationships between all of the performance evaluation measures uh, that you might be interested in testing. Uh, when you change each individual parameter. So it's a thorough analysis um, and that's part of the NATAC consortium. So if if you go to that, if you go to ipaknowledge.org and you want to see that published, you know, take, take a look around. Um, Let's see, tomorrow morning, we're actually doing our first panel podcast on Unbreaking Science about this. Uh, So right now it's uh, the 18th. And, and on okay. the 19th, tomorrow morning, we're going to do this panel podcast, and that'll be on YouTube and on Facebook and other places. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this out in time for that, but I can at least link to it in the yeah, show notes thanks. so people can see that. Um, is there anything that you, when we look at like the infection, meaningful infection, I'm not going to say infection numbers, I'm going to case numbers. When we look at COVID case numbers, mortality rate, is there anything meaningful that we can say about what those numbers are, given all of this mess? That's a that's a very probing question. I appreciate it very much. Well, what, <laughs> given that we know, right? The virus. It's okay is, if the answer is no. No, I've thought about that very question. It's, it's so so from February when it when it got out, the virus is spreading, right? So there's going to be more cases, the more testing you do. But at the same time, you're chasing the virus with testing. You're doing more testing. So that's going to lead to more cases. That's not what we're talking about. We're not just talking about you're finding more cases because you're doing more testing. That's kindergarten math. That's very simple. That's obvious, right? Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is that what we can say is if we do 100% indiscriminate screening for COVID-19 of every person every week, we would destroy our civilization because it would look like another surge. And it's not another surge. Mm-hmm. You're going to, right? And, and and so the fact that they're now dialing back the CT also tells us that they can dial it up and dial it back if they wanted to, to create a surge or to show that the vaccine's working, right? right. Create a surge. I'm not saying they're doing that, but they could But they do have that. the power to do that. and and Right. So it's really, really super important that everybody look up the podcasts and the articles that I've done on, on PCR, read as much as you can about the CT scandal, look up hashtag testgate when this gets out and, and just become a master of that topic so you can communicate it to other people and say, no, wait a minute. I'm not just some naive bumpkin that's saying that the more testing you do, the more cases you find. What I'm saying is the more testing you do when the prevalence is low in the presence of false positives, you're going to get more false positives. It's not more cases. That the, the description shouldn't conflate mm-hmm. more cases. It's more false positives. So the number of cases going up is theoretically predicted, mathematically predicted, when you do widespread and discriminate testing. This mm-hmm. means that that testing program has to basically stop. We should do diagnosis of COVID-19 with you know, algorithms based on things like uh, you know, your symptomology, certainly, uh, whether you think you were exposed or not, the symptoms of the person that they think that you're exposed to, 
And by the way, we're not sure if you have it, just like we've not been sure if you have influenza. So we call it influenza, even if you had bacterial pneumonia for right. years. Right. Here's some hydroxychloroquine just in case. Here's some ivermectin just in case. Mm -hmm. Let's check your vitamin D levels. Just in case. Yeah. Yeah. The diagnosis of potential COVID should come with an immediate early treatment. The Fauci treatment is go home, wait for two weeks, see if you need to go to the emergency room. That's that's a crime against humanity. Yeah. 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 As is, or as was, I hope nobody's doing this anymore, forcing nursing homes to accept patients who, who already have it. Um, Isn't that nice that that's come around that way, that we're now getting to the bottom of the the people are waking up and they're saying these were unnecessary deaths. Okay, mm -hmm. now the public needs to start asking what other unnecessary deaths have happened and who's the next Cuomo? Cuomo Cuomo was given a pat on the back by Fauci saying that New York did it right. Really? Remember that. Remember that Fauci said out of all the states he could have picked, there's 50 states. New York is doing it right. Seriously. So here's a question that I've had, and I know a lot of people have really dug into the numbers, and I just haven't seen anyone try to pull this apart. I'm not sure you even could, but what I've looked at to try and get a sense of what the real impact of COVID-19 has been is excess deaths, whether it's, you know, Euromomo or excess deaths in the U.S. To me, that's, there's something real about that, at least, you know, it's, it's, yes, somebody actually died. And then, you know, if we trust that, the statistics are being kept properly. That's a real number. My question is how many of the excess deaths that we've seen that we're attributing to COVID are because people were forced into nursing homes or because treatments were forcibly withheld as in, you know, a lot of States in in the U S is that, do you know of anyone who's looked at that? The treatment question tells us a lot. I mean, if, so let, let's do it this way, right? So from year to year, you had a certain number of respiratory illness deaths that were attributed to viruses and bacteria, right? You, you had that baseline. That baseline allegedly is gone. There's no influenza. But in reality, that's a diagnostic right. substitution. Yeah. Because they took the bucket diagnosis of influenza disease and they stripped off the, the label and they put COVID-19 on top. Right. That's basically, right? Right. So you have to go back from 2014 to 2019. We've done this analysis. We've done the math. We haven't published it yet. Where, where you subtract out the expected number of respiratory deaths that are that should have happened anyway <clears throat> due to COVID. Now, you're already in the worst case scenario. You're already biasing it because we did lock down. We did socially isolate, distance. We masked, whatever effect that would have on influenza. That's not accounted, accounted for. But let's be upfront about that. So, okay, so we have some subtraction there, right? At, at the end of this analysis that I'm describing, I'm going to add those deaths back on because then we have what, what proportion of, of COVID-19 deaths were actually misdiagnosed as COVID-19, but they were actually influenza or bacterial pneumonia and didn't get proper treatment. That's not how we treated influenza from 2014 to 2019. We gave them some right. kind of treatment, even if it was just go home and take an analgesic or even if it was just, you know, uh, but nobody was told that they had to be away from family members. No one was told that they had to socially isolate in their home. No mm-hmm. one was told that it was a problem if you go out to the grocery store or go to the drugstore and go ahead and get some medicine that you use every year whenever you get the flu. Mm-hmm. So second, we also had people that were saying, oh, you've got coronavirus. We're going to vaccinate you against the flu anyway, just be- in case. Well, the, right. we've never had a situation where coronavirus was circulating in the population and we were injecting thimerosal into 60% 
of flu vaccine recipients, and thimerosal actually inhibits a protein called ERAP1. ERAP1 is an endoplasmic reticulum protein folding protein. So it helps other proteins fold properly, and it's essential in antigen-presenting cells to actually to, to, to create properly folded antigens. It's essential that we not have thimerosal in our body if we're going to have a proper immune response to respiratory illnesses. We saw it in the Hong Kong study with Ben Cowling that if you got a thimerosal-containing vaccine, right, this is way before COVID, uh, if you got a thimerosal-containing vaccine, you were more likely to have a non-influenza respiratory virus. Right. So right. these people that are coming in and they're saying, oh, I think I have COVID, well, you know what, you better get your flu shot just in case. <laughs> so out of fear of flu shot, more and more and more people got the virus, even if they didn't have COVID, or got the vaccine, even if they didn't have COVID. So mm -hmm. influenza vaccination numbers, I think we're going to see that that's shot through the roof. Okay. And so yeah. we have to take the influenza vaccine induced respiratory illness off the top of that. So, right. So there's another number that we have to subtract. Um, <clears throat> then we have the medical error of using, um, Ventilators. Well, the ventilators in late stage COVID, rather than using low pressure, high oxygen, or God forbid, hyperbaric oxygen therapy that totally save everybody's life. Uh, we we also took a while to learn that we had to use anticoagulant therapies, right? So there's another medical error. We really didn't understand that some people, due to autoimmunity, they, they were they were, uh, they were actually uh, their platelets were aggregating. And, and you, you need to break that up. So that those all technically should come off of COVID-19. We're trying to get to a baseline death rate of COVID-19 in an educated mm -hmm. Western country that knows what they're doing. Um, mm -hmm. So there's, there's all these other things. And, 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 and then we have the absence that we talked about earlier of early treatment. So once you do that, I think that the COVID death rate is down below classic influenza that would be attributed. But then if you add the deaths back on, the excess deaths come back, they're there. We've got a pile of dead bodies we have to explain. There's no doubt about it. But it's due to medical error. It's due to denial of early treatment. It's due to, um, you know, misdiagnosis and, uh, you know, misuse of ventilators and all that. So now with 2020, um, in 2021, we have a chance now as medical care improves to get a better view of what COVID-19 deaths look like. We know that, oh, there's another category we have to, <laughs> we have to subtract out because I'm an idealist. 80% of people who die from coronavirus already had an autoimmune disease. Oh, an autoimmune disease specifically, not just a comorbidity. They Interesting. They had autoantibodies against some protein somewhere in their body. Wow, right. where do you where is that established? I will I, I will I will send that to you. I'm okay, thank you. Wow, major review. Wow, compared to the people who didn't have severe COVID but that had COVID, it's some smaller percentage. I haven't memorized it. It's like eight percent or something like that. So, mm -hmm. so where do the, where does the autoimmunity come from? The autoimmunity comes from the fact that these people have pro-reactogenic, auto-reactogenic immune systems. They're prone to autoimmunity. They have Th2 skewed uh, immune systems. They don't have a Th1 reaction to a virus, which is unusual. They have a Th2 reaction to a virus, and Th2 is more like a bacterial reaction. And so they're not appropriately able to mount their innate immunity. It's like their innate immunity is broken. Now, how much of that's due to the virus 
you know, messing around with the cells that are involved in the innate immunity? I don't know. But these people walked into it with Th2 skew. We know that aluminum in vaccines causes Th2 skew. We know that aluminum mm -hmm. in vaccines is used routinely to induce autoimmunity, to cause autoimmunity in animals routinely and reproducibly over and over and over again so that they can test drugs for asthma, they can test drugs for lupus, they can test drugs for allergic rhinitis, whatever it is that they're creating. So, in the so wait a second, are you, are you saying that in order to induce lupus, for example, in animal, in, in tests, they're injecting them with aluminum? Correct. Okay. And, and so in, in a similar fashion as you would get it in a vaccine or the similar, the same form that you would get it in a vaccine. The classic, the classic criticism of this observation is, well, first of all, yes, it's the same form. It's aluminum hydroxide. Okay. But the, the, the classic criticism is that it takes 10,000 10, to 20,000 20, times the dose typically to induce the autoimmunity in these in, in mice. Mm -hmm. And my answer to that is I've done the math and there are plenty of conditions that are brought on in mice with multiple doses. And the doses themselves, once you correct for the mouse body weight, overlap mm -hmm. the pediatric schedule in the first two or three years of life. Wow. So, Yes, they, we, we reach the same range of, of, of per body weight. So if aluminum is causing autoimmunity in the human population, then we can look across different countries and we can say, which countries don't use so many aluminum-containing vaccines? And is there a correlation between the use of aluminum vaccines and morbidity and mortality due to coronavirus? And there is. And so this is an amazing truth that we are setting, setting ourselves up this is why the comorbid conditions like diabetes put people at higher risk of auto of, of, because you have an autoimmune component to diabetes. It's the presence of auto reactive antibodies that is a strong predictor or TH2 skew, a strong predictor of serious COVID-19 disease. But guess what? That's also going to be a strong predictor of serious adverse event from COVID-19 vaccination. It's the same proteins with the same epitopes. Right. If you're going to have a reactogenic reaction to a spike protein, right, right, is this was the same pro spike protein? Why do you not expect, and, and, you know, and through pathogenic priming, we totally expect the same spike protein epitopes to cause problems, auto reactogenic problems, in patients whether they're getting the vaccine or getting the uh, infection. So the difference is, if you're walking into it with TH2 skew, you're walking into it with autoimmunity. The CDC is blind to this. They blinded themselves and they said, no, if you have autoimmunity, no problem. In fact, Allegheny County just announced where I live, they just announced that these are the people that are next up. They, they're in the 1A category. All the sick people line up and get, they're going to see a mass devastation in Allegheny County. And if you live in Allegheny County and you have an autoimmune disease, we're not sitting here happy that you're going to get really injured and sick or potentially die from the vaccine. We're very concerned about it. But if you do become injured from the coronavirus vaccine anywhere that you live, if you, if you have any adverse event of any kind, you can report it to VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. But more importantly, you should write a letter to the vaccine manufacturer and CC the US FDA. Because unless the manufacturer hears from you directly, that you had a vaccine adverse event, then the CDD, it doesn't really empower the FDA to require them to go back to do their clinical study again. And that's what we want. We want them to repeat their clinical studies because they didn't, they didn't include unhealthy people. They didn't include 
the immunocompromised. They didn't include people with diabetes. They excluded all these people from the early trials. So it's really super important that if you're taking the vaccine to protect yourself, but you understand it's also an experimental vaccine, it's going to be experimental for at least two more years, that it's, it's, it's kind of incumbent upon you. It's your duty to then report your, your adverse events to the vaccine manufacturer and CC the, the FDA. That's very, very important. So what, let's say a whole lot of people do that. What requires the vaccine manufacturer to then repeat their clinical study? I mean, they have product, li- they have, they're exempt from product liability. This is Aren't... separate from product liability. Okay. The, the FDA, when they have, a, like, if they, if, they see, if they see cardiomyopathy and they see idiopathic purpuria, or they see the thrombocytopenia at a certain rate, they can then go back to the original study and they can ask Moderna, Pfizer, whoever, mm. did you adequately study this in the populations that they're currently being vaccinated? And the answer is no. It was never studied in people with autoimmune disorders. Mm-hmm. And it, those people were excluded in particular. And so this is FDA must answer to the public this way. You are powerful as an individual to contact the FDA but make the letter to the vaccine manufacturer and let them know what population you're in. I have type two diabetes. I have rheumatoid arthritis. I have lupus. I have whatever autoimmune disease that you have, make sure you tell them that I am in the population of American citizens that have this. If you have asthma or allergic rhinitis or whatever, if you see just hay fever, that's enough to do Mm -hmm. it. So if you have an autoimmune condition, especially, you should report. And then they'll say, well, wait a minute, there's all these reports coming from American citizens that had autoimmune conditions. Did you study that population? And they have to say, no, we didn't. And they'll right. say, you need to go back and do another study. Right. So another question for these people, let's say someone has has one of these, has a re- bad reaction. Is there anything, you, you mentioned hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Is there anything... Any, people can do that that you could recommend and maybe recommend is the wrong word here, but is there anything people can do if they do have a bad reaction to the vaccine? I can't make a single uh, medical recommendation at all, but what I can tell you, whether it's infection or uh, injection, your body will fold your proteins more accurately if you have adequate vitamin D3. Mm-hmm. Right. So I write about this in my paper. Autism is an acquired cellular detoxification deficiency syndrome. Vitamin D3 helps your the, the, about a third of your proteins. This is scientific research I'm talking about, not medical advice. The, about a third of your proteins have to be handheld with extra energy to fold properly into the endoplasmic reticulum of your cell. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Two-thirds, they fold automatically, like if you dropped a, a piece of spaghetti on your plate and it folded into clover leaf, you know, that's that's, that's amazing. <laughs> it's just that thermodynamically, that's the least energetic, you know, configuration. It takes more energy to take it out of a clover leaf. But a, a, a third of your proteins actually require hand-holding. And what happens in our cells when we don't fold our proteins right? There's a reaction called the unfolded protein response. You get these strange proteins that can't do the cellular metabolism they're supposed to do. They they actually end up clogging up the endoplasmic reticulum and your cells swell. They balloon out a little bit. That swelling causes a, a, a microscopic, really tiny, tiny distance between proteins on the cell surface to expand. It's like a detector. I'm showing you with my fingers 
So um, it's like your proteins are this far apart. You swell the surface and they open up a little. That swelling and they break the connection causes the unfolded protein response to occur. That whole entire process is called endoplasmic reticulum stress. That stress on the cell is caused by genetics, by unfolded pro pro proteins that can't fold right due to genetics. And it's caused by things like aluminum. It's caused by mercury. It's caused by air pollution. It's caused by a lot of toxins, okay? So you have genetic toxicity and environmental toxicity coming in all at the same time, causing endoplasmic reticulum stress on your cells. And so vitamin D really, really helps that process resolve in a healthy way. It, it's a, vitamin D is a steroid, basically. So the cell has three choices. The cell can either slow down the rate of transcription of making RNA from your DNA, or it can slow down the rate of translation, making protein from the RNA, or it can die. That's the endoplasmic reticulum response. When it dies, it spills out all these oddly folded proteins into the interstitium. Those oddly folded proteins are picked up by the immune system as foreign proteins, and you get an autoreactive mm. immunity. So it's really important that you look at, I'm going to give a reference to Keith Baggerly, B-A-G-G-E-R-L-Y. Keith Baggerly is an MD. I think he's retired now, but he was at the um, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And he and his mom actually are strong proponents of getting enough vitamin D. Uh, and he looked at the FDA's recommendation. I think the FDA's recommendation to avoid toxicity from uh, vitamin D, uh, D3, is something like 8,000 or something, you know, like that 5,000, something small. Yeah. Uh, and he actually, he's a statistician, a brilliant biostatistician. And he actually looked at their study that they did to look, you know, the data that they looked at for vitamin D3 toxicity. And he found that they were way off. They made a major uh, uh, calculation error. Oh, wow. And that, you know, if you think about it, if you go out in the sunshine and during an afternoon, you get like 18,000 international units of vitamin D3. Or your, your skin will make it, vitamin D. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we are able to tolerate more vitamin D than uh, the FDA says, and that needs to change. He hasn't been successful in getting them to change, but he does say that something like 80% of cancers could be uh, prevented by having adequate vitamin D. And then understand that vitamin A is the sister to vitamin D. So to avoid vitamin D toxicity, you can balance it out with A. Um, and you certainly don't want to take a lot of vitamin A by itself. You have to balance that with D. Right. So they right. kind of go hand in hand. Proper nutrition, who knew? Stay away from toxins. You know, if you if you're going to get vaccinated, um, in general, just stay away from toxins. You know, get all get all the toxins out of your house that you can. Um, but if you're going to get vaccinated, what I was going to say is, you know, certainly talk with your doctor about your concerns over autoimmunity. The more people that are vaccinating that talk to the doctor and say, "Listen, I have an autoimmune condition. I have rheumatoid arthritis. <laughs> I have autoimmunity in my family." Should I get vaccinated? And the doctor says, I'll check. They go and they look at the CDC. They look at the vaccine information sheet. There's nothing that says I can't. Okay, go for it. Then the doctor has the experience of seeing adverse events. That's the time time to educate your doctors when you ask questions. Mm -hmm. So then the doctor sees the adverse events of the people without immunity, and maybe it'll start clicking in their brain. Hey, I'm seeing more adverse events of people that ask me, you know, that, that they have lupus and they died or they had lupus and they it, it, it flared up 
you know, whatever. Well, this is really important that we that we, we have that one brief moment in time when you're talking with your physician. And I would say never get a vaccine at um, if you're going to um, a drugstore. Never go to a pharmacy. And you why is have that? A, because you want to have a relationship with a physician. Mm. You know what's 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 the what's the, what's a, a pharmacist going to tell you? Absolutely nothing. They, you know, yeah. it, it's amazing that they want to empower dentists to vaccinate. Right, right. It's just crazy. You, said you want a relationship with your physician, so talk to your doctor. Yeah, you said something earlier I wanted to get back to. You said that there is a correlation between aluminum vaccination and COVID-19 deaths. Is there a study? Is, can you can you point me to something? It's not out yet. It's not out okay. yet. Okay, but so, it's coming. And that's coming from you guys? No, there's another group that's working on it. And, okay. and, and, you know, we'll make sure that we get that to you. They're doing the part where it's the vaccinating. Com- well, it is published that vaccinating countries have more autoimmunity. I- that's for sure. All right. Okay. That that part's published. They have more autism. They All of that. Um, that's coming out uh, soon. That part's coming out soon. The next step then is to say, OK, what proportion of these you know, vaccines are aluminum containing vaccines. And, and since we know there's a, a completely other group that's that that's publishing a paper that shows um, COVID-19 mortality seems to be higher in the, uh, you know, like the United States, the more industrialized, advanced countries. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we know that they're more vaccinating. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there was also, I, I saw something several months ago showing a correlation between um elderly populations receiving the flu vaccine and higher rates of, of COVID-19 deaths too. But there it is. I mean, I talked about the mercury. That's going to impair their ability to mount an adequate immune response to any respiratory illness. And, you know, believe me, in these nursing homes, the, <laughs> if you tested these patients for influenza A, B, RSV, if you tested them for bacterial pneumonia, many of them that were given COVID-19 probably had these other viruses Mm-hmm. as well or instead of COVID-19. And we're seeing, what do you make of the, the numbers that we're seeing? It looks like in several several countries, we're seeing a rise in deaths in the elderly or in nursing homes after the vaccine campaign starts. Are those, have you have you looked at the, at the data for that? And what do you make of that? I, I, I think the world is waking up to uh, the, the, the very, very sad reality. This has been going on for decades. The, the, the influenza vaccination campaign has been a, a, a serious problem in the elderly for a long time. The, this, the vaccine denialists, the vaccine injury uh, and death denialists will say, well, there's no data on that, but they've made sure that those data haven't come forward. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing, I mean, it's almost comical to me, anyone who has a positive PCR test for COVID and then dies is a COVID death, is a COVID-19 death, but someone who has a vaccine and, you know, drops dead 10 minutes later, there's no relation, you know. That I, that I call the great sliding scale of evidence, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's if it's a virus, causality is a given. Mm-hmm. The virus is just has to be in the same room, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> or a fragment a va- of the virus. Right, but if it's a vaccine, you have to go to hell and back to actually prove that the the owner the burden of proof shouldn't be on the victim. Yeah. Where when in the United States has something has something happened that the, the the victim has to prove that somebody did something to them 
as opposed to okay, you've got the you know um, the, the pre presumption of innocence is healthy, right? But you also have to prove your innocence, right? <laughs> so you're guilty until proven otherwise. It's not really how it goes. It's yeah. in criminal courts. It's based on beyond a shadow of a doubt. Well, which doubt? The doubt that they did it. The doubt that they didn't. Okay. And so they actually, the presumption of innocence is super protective of the people that are accused. And that's the way that it should be. In this case, non-technical, non-medical parents of children or daughters and sons of the elderly who die then have to prove that it was the vaccine. That's ridiculous. They, they don't have the ability to do it. Second, when you go to the National uh, uh, National Injury Vaccine Compensation Program, you're not allowed discovery. It's not part mm -hmm. of it. You're not allowed to cite prior cases and prior rulings, but they do. They'll cite that they've already decided aluminum's not a problem, so they're not going to listen to this testimony and base their ruling on the testimony that they listen to. And it's hidden that they that they turf somebody's testimony. It's biased in favor of the defendant, which is the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department, Department of Health and Human Services is actually the defendant in these cases, and they administer the judicial system. I mean, the, the, yeah, the, where the else does that system, happen? It doesn't, right? It, it, it banana republics. That's when it happens. It's a kangaroo yeah. court, and so yeah. I, I'm supposed to, you know, show up as a as an expert and put my time into providing 200 references that show aluminum's a problem, and just have a special master say, "No, we've already decided that's not a problem. Go away." Yeah. I'm citing science that occurred after they decided aluminum wasn't a problem. Hmm. So they're they're denying that aluminum is a problem, ignoring the science. And so, so we don't have a science-based vaccination industry. That's for sure. Yeah. If somebody, you know, outside of the vaccine court, if if someone did want to determine whether a, a death, say, you know, a few days after a vaccine was related to the vet was caused by the vaccine. How would you do that? I mean, you get an autopsy. What would you, how, how would you, what would, what evidence would you need to show, you know, maybe not vaccine court because that's completely, you know, as you said, it's a kangaroo court, but just to, to be able to, to legitimately demonstrate um, that it, that it, what would you need? What evidence? Well, would you I, need? I recently analyzed all the available VAERS data on mortality. Okay. And if the vaccines are not causing deaths, if mRNA vaccines are not causing deaths in COVID-19, then the number of deaths on the day of vaccination in people who are vaccinated should be equal to the number of deaths on the day after vaccination, which should be equal to the number of deaths on the third day after vaccination, all the way up to 30 days. Mm -hmm. That's not what we find. Mm. We find the, the second most common day that a person dies who has died, who's reported to VAERS, dies on day one. The most common deaths occur on day two. And then on day three, it drops down some, and then day four, but it's not flat. And it's statistically significantly mm -hmm. different from the null. The null hypothesis is an equal distribution of deaths every day. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the other analysis that could be done would be to say, okay, how many people died the day before they were going to get their vaccine? No. If we could get that that number, yeah, mom died or dad died. They're they're gonna get they were scheduled to get their vaccine the next day. That number would be much lower than the number 
uh, you know, pr proportion wise of, of people who die following the vaccine. We don't have those data, but I, I expect it would be much lower if we could correct, if we, if those were reported to VAERS as well, but they're not. So it's, you know, it's apples and oranges to some extent, but the entire analysis I just mentioned is a very, very strong first evidence of causality. Uh, I also did it for um, anaphylaxis, right? And anaphylaxis, almost all the cases occur on day one. And mm -hmm. the second most common day is day two, and then it drops down to baseline on day three. So that also is highly significant in terms of the statistical deviation from the null hypothesis. So mm -hmm. I, as a, as a scientist who could do that kind of analysis fairly readily, you know, can say, yeah, the, the vaccines are causing death, and that's how I communicated it. I put out a very brief technical report. In fact, it's just a PowerPoint presentation showing the results. I'm basically saying to the scientific community, hey, guys, if you look at the various data this way, this is what you're going to find. Somebody contacted me and said that they're doing a similar analysis and found the same thing. Great. They, they can publish it. That's fine. Um, but as a single fan, as a family, you know, are you we're putting such a, a, a burden on the families to demonstrate causality when, you know, like you said earlier, with the virus, it's just assumed automatically. And there's a lot of rationalization for that, right? Out of an abundance of caution, whatever. But realize that the reason why vaccine injury and deaths, uh, you know, you know this, but the reason why vaccine injuries and deaths are denied is so that people don't stop taking the vaccine, which is the most circular argument that I've ever heard for anything. Yeah. Vaccines are so safe and effective, nobody can learn how risky they are. Right. Right. Okay. So what I would do is if, if I have, a, uh, I, I would um, file for fraud. I, I, I would try to get it into a civil court on the basis of that the entire program has defrauded the public and not just wait for the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program to deny my case or settle my case. Um, it, it, some people have tried that, they get thrown out of court, they get referred back to, but if there's an onslaught of cases, mm -hmm. then one will stick. There'll be a judge somewhere that says, yeah, I've heard enough of this shit. I'm not doing that anymore. Cases from family members of those who have died or suffered severe, severe injury from the vaccines. Yep. What we need is a retiring judge who's willing to put their neck out there to hear a case, you know. Yeah, that's the hard, that, that, part. The, the hard phone call saying, why are you hearing this case? We're going to make your life hell. Well, go ahead. I've got colon cancer and I'm going to die in nine months. Go right. ahead and do your worst. That's what we need. We need a scenario like that where somebody that, that doesn't really give a crap about their legacy to actually yeah. hear this out and stand up to the beast. Yeah, I'm sure there are a few out there. Um, one question about the VAERS data. So when you're you're looking at these at the deaths, what are the numbers? How many that have been reported to VAERS? How many about how many deaths have been reported? I think right now it's it's about twelve hundred or so. So you okay. know the data that I analyzed, how I did my search, I ended up with nine hundred fifty or so um, okay. when I did it. But it's about twelve hundred, and of course we know that uh, uh, for every one death or every one adverse event that's reported, there it may be as uh, they may be underreported by a factor of 100 to 1, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and, and given that the doctors say, no, it wasn't the vaccine, families yeah. are less likely to report it. You know, um, if you know Although somebody. I would, I, I would guess with this vaccine, that number's a little, little higher. Just because. That's the, pres that's the presumption, but the denialism is in full force. 
The yeah, right? it is. It is. Yeah. Don't make my life difficult. I have so much paperwork to fill out. It's not wasn't the vaccine. Who knows what they're saying? That's the point. Yeah. So uh, what, what what I'm saying is that it's our it's our duty as vaccine risk aware Americans to make sure that if we know somebody that did have somebody die, like a, a guy that um, I I know, just told me that that his builder, he's a construction guy, his builder dropped dead after the second vaccine. Oh, wow. And and I, you know, it's my duty now to say, well, did you tell the family to report it to VAERS? Who's going to want to have to be the bad guy to say, this might have been the vaccine. You, you kind of have to report it. They're in mourning. Right. right. So it's all this it's not bias. an easy conversation to have. It's not. It's not. And, and but the, so we have you have up to three years to to file with VAERS. But again, okay. reporting it to the vaccine manufacturer and seeing seeing the uh, the FDA is more much more important than filing. Um, to VAERS. And, and the other thing is people think that you have to file in VAERS to file a case in, oh, I'm sorry, you can file in VAERS anytime, any, any, anytime, 10 years, 20 years later, it doesn't matter. But to, to, to file a National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, there, there's a clock that's ticking. Those and that's the three-year clock. Yeah, those two processes are separate. So you can file in yeah. VAERS and sue or sue but not file in VAERS, they're separate. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, anything else, any parting thoughts, anything else you'd like to, to get across? Well, these are, these are tough times, but the, the tide is turning. I, I'm 100% convinced that, you know, we thought it was HPV vaccine that was going to really, you know, bring about a, a massive sea change. The coronavirus vaccine, unfortunately, is going to lead to mass deaths. It's absolutely going to happen. It's going to happen a couple of key events, right? So when, when they vaccinated the elderly, they could hide it due to our widespread disregard for deaths in the elderly. It's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. Now they were probably going to die anyway. They're over 90, whatever. When they vaccinated the Healthcare workers, they could deny that by putting out statements like what happened here at a major medical institution in Allegheny County. No one that works for this hospital will talk about this vaccine. They ban the speech. Wow. They're going to be fired. If you get wow. back to me, that you right, that came from the CEO of a major medical corporation here. But what's happening next are the teachers. And in small town America, when you know two or three teachers in every county die of following the COVID-19 vaccine. And they die from the same thing. And they were healthy. Small town America is not going to put up with this bullshit anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's coming. The second, the second wave of death that we can expect from COVID-19 vaccines, there's not, in the people who are vaccinated now, they've developed peg sensitivity, many of them. They already, 70% of Americans already had peg sensitivity. 8% yeah. had high, you know, super high sensitivity. Well, as that proportion of people receiving the peg, pegylated mRNA vaccines gets, you know, wow, I had the worst reaction. That person probably is going to develop a major peg sensitivity. And peg, just for, for listeners who may, it's polyethylene glycol, um, right. just for, for anyone who doesn't. Right. It's, it's the fatty coat around the mRNA. It's the encapsulated, encapsulated part of the vaccine yeah. um, particle. So these people are going to start seeing that they when they take digestive aids or they take laxatives that have peg in them they're going to start seeing digestive problems you know serious like inflammatory digestive problems 
But the, if they then dare get the vaccine again in the future, they're going to see another round of anaphylaxis to the point where they're going to run out of EpiPens because they're vaccinating hundreds of millions of people. Mm -hmm. So when they run out of EpiPens, we're going to see deaths from anaphylaxis. And second, we're going to also see um, all the autoimmunity. So the people that right, so the people that develop mm -hmm. autoimmune reaction to the spike protein, they'll have their reaction not with the with the booster when they get the booster in the future. So the the the, the second event to look for is going to be this mass amount. Of, if you think it's bad now with the number of deaths that are happening following the vaccines in the United mm -hmm. States, just wait until the booster shot. A couple, of, you know, I don't know, eight months from now when they're talking about doing it. Yeah. And 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 I'm not anticipating that with any form of of glee. I'm not rubbing my hands waiting for it to happen. What I'm saying is, it's a warning specifically to the medical community that you're going to be held liable and responsible for this because mm -hmm. you're not doing anything to stop it. You have to screen people with autoimmune conditions out of your vaccination program, period. The problem is up to 54% of Americans have some form of autoimmunity, chronic illness. So wow. what are they going to do? How are they going to survive? How are they going to make a viable vaccination program? Yeah. But, uh, you know, science is the answer. This 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 coronavirus is taught. It, it stressed every system that we have, and it showed the flaws in the system. Which is Science, great. That's fantastic. It is. It is. It's, it's 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 really a valuable lesson. But science is the answer, and so rather than despair, just try to support independent science. That's all I can say. Look at what mm -hmm. we're doing at IPAC. Look around to see if what we're doing isn't worth your five dollars a month, because I have three people now. Over the past two weeks, three people have contacted me and said they're leaving academia. They want to come work for IPAC. I can't afford them. So wow. one's, an, one's an epidemiologist. I'm not going to say where she is, but she's great. Um, and she's fed up with it. Another one is this really strange. She has training in math sciences. Um, uh, she has training in uh, immunology and in epidemiology. And she's, oh, wow. stuck in his, she's stuck in Israel right now, which is, oh, which wow. is a nightmare. She wants to to con continue doing research, um, and and the third one is uh, um, a um, another epidemiologist, a biostatistician. Sorry. So uh, you know, the more number, the more people we can have with their hands on numbers that I pack, the better we'll be. And yeah. we'll put work uh, doing peer reviewed publications and technical reports, and you know. So it's it's time for IPAC to grow. Now people should be aware. I I don't believe in infinite growth. I don't think that IPAC should be on every street corner <laughs> or anything like right, that. Right. right? We, we, we are serving a purpose right now in what's happening in history. And I feel honored to have the trust of the public to carry through, to, to execute the programs that we've proposed. And uh, obviously extremely grateful for, uh, for all the support. Well, and I, the way I see it is what you're doing is, is maybe a model for others to follow that there could be lots and lots of IPACs popping up across the world because there had, you know, you talk about these three people, but I'm sure there are, there are thousands of people in academia, in research who are desperate to get out or who are just, who are fed up with how things are and would love to come and, and work for someone like you. So, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic too. I feel like it, so, yes, I agree that that's a possibility. They're not willing to walk away from their pensions, right? They're yeah. not willing to lose their yeah. health care. Yeah. They have families. They've got kids in college, wherever stage you're at. My, my point is, if IPAC is going to be successful permanently, 
then yes, we you know there's there's power there's 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 power in numbers there's safety mm-hmm. in numbers I should say. Mm-hmm. So if we can draw people to IPAC, I would love I support independent research. Of course, people can replicate the experiments or the studies that we do. That's fine, uh, and vice versa if some if there's independence out there. But I I literally had to go through hell to set up IPAC. I had to really you know divorce myself from any possible future in academia and and i that that's a hard hoe to uh, that's a hard road to hoe if you will that's that's a very yeah. daunting task to say make it or break it i'm on my own i'm going to do this you the don't nice you don't get is, that safety net back right the nice thing is that if we can put an umbrella a safety umbrella over people that are exiting and maybe mm-hmm. give them a transition plan that would be great. So if you're independently wealthy and you've got, if you're a billionaire and you're fed up, if you're Elon Musk and you want to see independent science done, right? Yeah. You know, give me a call. Uh, we're doing so much. Uh, you know, you don't have to be a billionaire to help us. So you could just, we'll, we'll, we'll make it one way or the other. But the, the, the most important thing to realize is if I make a mistake, I'll admit it and I'll back off, right? I'll retract a paper. The, our studies by nature are targeted specifically because they show problems with vaccines. So yes, we make mistakes for human beings, but I'm the, I'll be the first one to say there's a problem um, be, because I'm standing up for objectivity of science for all time. I, I'm not doing it just for vaccines. I'm not doing it for public health. Uh, I, I think we can improve psychology. We can improve social sciences. We can improve biology, the tropical uh, ecology. There's so much that could be done if people had more faith and confidence in science. And they don't. And that's the saddest part is that due to public health, you know, meanderings away from the common goal of science, the public has lost so much faith in science. And please don't. Mm-hmm. There's pseudoscience and then there's science. Please yeah. don't don't lose confidence in science. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Um, I'll get this up in the next few days and I'd love to have you back on. I think there's there's a lot to talk about. Um, thank you so much for taking me. All right. Thank you. Take it easy.